0: you that's great (laughs) all right let's just all take a moment to enjoy this okay (laughs) good morning my name is dana and uh, i'm one of the pastors here at erickson covenant church nice to have you with us this morning i'm the shortest of the pastor's at Erickson Come Church, all the pastors. Okay. Uh, before I say anything this morning, I want you to know something about me. I love Christmas. I really love it. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not crazy or anything. Like, I don't play holiday music in October, but I have been known to drive 45 minutes out of town because that was the only place that sold Christmas trees on the 12th of November. Um. <laughs> That's not an exaggeration. Um, my family was great at Christmas, like really great. My grandparents lived in this old farmhouse, and so we'd go off into the country, and it always snowed, and we would literally go for horse-drawn sleigh rides with their neighbor's team of horses. Um, And one of their friends would dress up as Santa Claus and come over on Christmas Eve to play the guitar. And we knew it was Ken McLean because he had a very recognizable voice and black hair sticking out from under the wig. Uh, But we just played along. And I don't think this is like a real Christmas tradition, but I always got cheese Whiz in my stocking because I wasn't allowed to have it any other time the rest of the year. And one year when I was about eight years old, um, I asked my parents for a very specific Cabbage Patch Kid for Christmas. Uh, I was a child of the 80s. These were a big deal. We had been in Toys R Us, and I had fallen in love with this one little doll in a white jumper with pink sleeves and light brown hair. She was lovely. This isn't – that's not really her, but it's close enough, so you get the idea. Some of you will know this, like how this happens to little kids when they fall in love, like when they see a particular doll or maybe a stuffed animal – And you just fall in love with it, like head over heels, heartbreakingly in love with that particular doll. And you just know, like it's not that you need another doll, it's who they are as an individual, right? And you just know that that little doll has spent her her whole sad, lonely life waiting for you to rescue her and love her. Is that just me? Am I the only person who? Okay, (laughs) Maybe. Uh, Well, that's how I felt about this doll. I loved her. And Cabbage Patch Kids really played into this because they, they all look different. You can't find two Cabbage Patch Kids that are the same. And they came with these papers that you filled out and mailed away. They sent you an adoption certificate with a big gold seal. So you didn't buy a Cabbage Patch Kid. You adopted a Cabbage Patch Kid. Well, shortly after the December Toys R Us trip, a package appeared under my Christmas tree and it was beautifully wrapped and it was the exact size and very recognizable shape of those Cabbage Patch Kid boxes. I think I've told some of you before that my sister and I were latchkey kids, which um, is some sort of horrible offense now, but it was perfectly acceptable then. And so we would be home for about 20 minutes, 20 precious minutes, after school, before my mother got home from work. And I swear to you that I had never done this before, and I have never done it since. And, Mom, if you're listening on this podcast, I'm really, really sorry to tell you this, but one day after school, because I know she will be, one day after school, I went under the tree, and I, like my mom tapes the gift tag down top and bottom, and I untaped the gift tag and lifted it up, And then I made a little cut in the paper, and then I widened the cut out in an X shape and folded the edges out, and then I got a flashlight so I could look inside the plastic and peek at my doll. And there she was. Her white jumper, the pink sleeves, the blue eyes, and blonde hair. Blonde hair. Not light brown hair like my baby was supposed to have, Blonde hair. I'm not exaggerating. Tears sprung into my eyes. I had this horrible sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. And I taped that tag back down to cover up the hole that I made and went to my room. And over the next couple of weeks, I just had every imaginable feeling, right? I was furious with my mother for buying the wrong doll. And then and then I hated this blonde-haired monstrosity under my tree and then I would just dissolve into tears because, I mean, it wasn't her fault that she got chosen by mistake. She needed to be adopted too, right? And and then, and then I would think, who, who has my real baby under their tree this Christmas and are they going to be a good mommy to her? Like, it just cycled. Like, I don't know what my family thought was wrong with me that year because I couldn't tell them, right? I was supposed to know the wrong baby was in that box. Even at eight years old, I had an extremely well-developed sense of how stuff could make me happy at Christmas. If I just get this particular doll, I know I'll be happy. And never mind that this is not an exaggeration either. This was going to be Cabbage Patch Kid number seven in my life. If I just get X, I'll be happy. This is not going to be news to anyone, but there is an enormous focus on stuff at Christmas time. Right? We'd like Christmas to be about family. We'd like it to be about goodwill, about peace on earth, about Jesus. But the truth is, pretty often, it's mostly about stuff. I've been asking people for the last few weeks, so are you all ready for Christmas? And not one time has someone gone, yeah, you know what? I am really paying attention to all the places where there's peace on earth. It's not what they say. They go, oh, no, I haven't even started my shopping yet. Or, oh, I cannot figure out what to get for my parents. They have everything. Or, I'm almost ready. I just need one more new string of lights for outside. So it's not, I mean, it's not a criticism. I do that, too. Christmas has been incredibly consumer-driven the entire time most of us have been alive. Right? I can't even honestly say Christmas has become consumeristic. It, I don't remember a time when it wasn't like that. Stuff is the focus. If I just get X, I'll be happy. Consumerism is defined this way, the preoccupation with an inclination toward the buying of Consumer goods. And we sort of know consumerism is wrong, but most of the time, even as Christians, we perpetuate it. Our shopping habits, our celebrations, our visa bills look just like everybody else's. And if we're honest, Christmas kind of amplifies this belief we have the whole rest of the year. That there is out there somewhere something we can buy, something we can own, or maybe something we can give someone that will satisfy the longing, that will make it right. When I first started working with InterVarsity, uh, there were some really lean years. Uh, I was raising money for my salary and ministry expenses, and the truth is that. Uh, it was hard to get enough money coming in. And we got paid once a month at the very, very end of the month. And so then by the time you paid rent and uh, bills and groceries, usually by the fourth week the money had run out. And I hated the humiliation of trying to pay for something in that fourth week and having my debit card declined. And I noticed something about myself in that season, this pattern that I was repeating over and over and over. It went like this. So sometime in the fourth week of the month, I would run out of money. And that would mean some kind of humiliating experience. Like either I'd have a card declined or um, I'd have to make up a reason that I couldn't go and see a movie with friends or I'd have to ask my parents for help with car repairs. Uh, Something. And I would just get slammed by poor self-image i would feel terrible about myself i'd be walking down the street feeling like a failure at life like nothing i did was worthwhile and i felt like everybody else could see that too and then this magical thing would happen the end of the month would come and i would get paid and there'd be money in my bank account and you know what i would do go to the mall I'd go to the mall like I'm not proud of this, okay? I just want you to understand. I'm not, I'm not proud of it. I'm not advocating. I'm just trying to be honest. So, so the end of the month would come. I would get this money. I would go to the mall. I would go to Winners, and I would buy some kind of stupid trinket, like a mixing bowl. I still have this beautiful blue mixing bowl from that season, which I keep to remind myself not to do this anymore. Um, I'd buy a mixing bowl or a pair of jeans or a new journal, something. It was just something to buy. Or, and then I'd just sit there in the food court having a coffee, just savoring the feeling of having money to spend. I wasn't blowing, like, hundreds hundreds or thousands of dollars. It's not like that. But I was, it's hard to explain, I was trying to restore a sense of balance or something. Like, restore a sense of confidence and well-being in my soul that got shattered the week before when I was broke. And I lived in that cycle for months, maybe over a year, humiliation and then payday and then shopping and satisfaction and then this mounting anxiety and then humiliation again. And then I met Bud. I'd taken a group of students to the downtown east side of Vancouver for a month, and one of the people we met was Bud Osborne, who was a lifelong uh, poet and social activist, Um, He had been fighting his whole life for secure, affordable housing for people on the margins, including himself. Uh, Bud was a recovering addict on disability. He was, when I met him, dying of hepatitis, and he didn't have much money and had often been homeless. And I watched a documentary about the difference that Bud's work had made, and I listened to him share about his life, and I read his, like, got wrenchingly beautiful poetry and he talked about how it was almost impossible to get access or to have influence on anyone in authority if you didn't have money or resources so he was going to fight to the death for housing but the truth is he was going to lose almost every fight And I was furious about that. Like, What kind of system was it that valued money over people? And then one day in the summer following that trip, I was back at home. I was sitting on my front steps thinking about Bud, praying for him. And all of a sudden, this thing just landed for me. And I realized the way that I was handling my money in that cycle every month was perpetuating the system that made Bud's work irrelevant. Like, I was allowing my self-worth and happiness to be dependent on money. I felt good when I had it to spend. I felt awful when it was gone. And those feelings were arising from this belief that I don't think I had ever articulated. That people are only valuable when they have money. I seemed to believe or feel that I was only valuable when I had money. And I was horrified because I did not think I believed that. I would never have said it. But I was living as though it were true. And the consumerist mentality that judged Bud's life worthless was the same mentality that made me go shopping on payday. So if I was going to believe something different about him, I was going to need to end that pattern in my life. There's a story in the Gospel of Luke where a young ruler comes to Jesus and asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I like this guy. I really like him. I don't think he's being pretentious or arrogant. I think he genuinely wants to know Jesus' reputation has been spreading for a while now. People are following him, and this guy wants in. How do I get the life you're offering? What do I have to do? And Jesus is so great in this story. He says, well, you've got to keep the commandments. And the man is thrilled. I've done that. He said, that's great. I've been keeping those since I was a boy. Listen, this guy... This man is every single one of us who grew up in a middle-class Christian home. Every single one of us. Don't judge him. Embrace him. Learn from him. Because this story could be about you or could be about me. I want to follow you, Jesus. I love you. What do I need to do to be faithful? That's what we're all asking. Well, You have to do the Christian thing, okay? You have to be faithful to your spouse. Don't murder, steal, or lie. Be good to your parents. And our answer often is, of course, I would never do those things. I've lived that right way my entire life. And in Mark's version of this story, it says right at this point, Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's important because Jesus is not mad When he delivers this next line, he loves this man. He wants this man to make it. He wants him to have eternal life. The desire is good and Jesus wants to grant it. And so he looks at this man with with love and compassion, with hope and longing for him. And he says, okay, there's just one more thing. You need to sell everything you own. And give the money to the poor so you can't ever get it back. And then come follow me. How would you respond to that? I know how the church usually responds to it. We usually respond with something like, you know, this passage isn't really about stuff and money. It just means you have to value Jesus more than you value anything else. It doesn't really mean we're supposed to sell our things. We are so desperate, so desperate to make sure we don't get too close to radical, to any belief that would require us to live differently in relation to our money, that we dismiss this story. We miss it. I don't know. Maybe it's not about money. Maybe it is. I don't think that Jesus was being hypothetical with this guy. And I don't think that we are any less attached to our money than he was. I know I'm not. Here's what I do know. I know that this man desperately wanted to follow Jesus. I know that was a good desire. I know that Jesus loved him. And I know that Jesus wanted him to have eternal life. And so then Jesus tells him the truth. Friend, if you want eternal life, you have to get with me. And you better get rid of all your stuff and all your money because that's going to hold you back. The money and the stuff, that was a ball and chain in his life. Jesus isn't being mean. He's trying to free this man from what binds him so that he'll be able to follow and find what his heart desires. We know that's what Jesus wants because the man gets really sad and Jesus exclaims how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier, to go, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I do not care if there is a hole in the side of the wall of Jeru- around Jerusalem that is just big enough that a camel can—that's called the eye of the needle—and a camel can just squeeze through it if they take off all their bags. I don't care if that's true. It might be. Doesn't matter. Don't make excuses. Don't miss the point of this story. The point is that Jesus is telling us a profound truth. The money, the stuff, the belief that you'll be happy if you just have this or just buy that. Consumerism is keeping you from having eternal life. It's keeping you from being with him. My favorite part of the story is Peter's response, because all the people listening, they're all like, well, then who can even be saved? Because they think he's asking an impossible thing like we do. And then Peter pipes up, and I think he's still kind of like putting the pieces together when he talks. And he goes, "Uh, wait, we. I mean, we kind of did that right. We we left our homes and followed you. It's like he's suddenly saying, maybe that is possible because we did that. We walked away from everything. And Jesus tells him promises that anything they've left, anything it's cost them, they'll receive much more plus eternal life. He's telling them, you know. He's not telling them it's a one-for-one trade. If you walk away from something, you'll definitely get back the car that's the same color as the car that you hit a deer with on your way to Alpha, right? Like, it's not not that. He is, however, saying it's worth it. I know it seems expensive, but it's a really good trade. You are going to get so much more. Then you walked away from. The application of the story tends to be about what you leave behind. Think about this. At this exact point in the story, when this man is standing in front of Jesus, there are two paths diverging in front of him. One is to walk away from his possessions and head off into the unknown with Jesus. And the other is to let Jesus go on his way and stay put in his life. Now, the upper path looks really costly at this point in the story. It doesn't seem like a very good choice. But if we fast forward a few months or even a year into the future, what do those paths look like then? The lower path to stay put, it looks exactly the same. He probably makes more money, puts an addition on his house, buys a boat, carries on with life. I don't know, status quo. But the upper path, the path that Peter is on, six months down the line, he has gotten to see Jesus rise from the dead. Like he met the risen Christ. He's been in the upper room when the Holy Spirit blows through there like a hurricane and lands on his head like a tongue of fire. He's been part of preaching in the streets when thousands of people came to faith in one day. He's seen jail cells literally shake until they open and the prisoners can walk out. He's seen people who are blind receive their sight, people's limbs regrown. That path, six months down the line, is amazing. Amazing. Come follow me. You know who else gets called that way? The apostles, the 12. I think it's possible that this young man was being invited into the very heart of bringing the gospel to the world. When Jesus says, come follow me, he's saying, do you want to be part of establishing my kingdom here on earth? Do you want to build the early church? My friend, you've got to get rid of your stuff. We want to straddle these two paths. One foot following Jesus, establishing his kingdom. The other foot making sure we still have a great house, car, a new iPhone, whatever else it is. That's okay for a while. But the further out they go, the further those paths diverge. How far can you do the splits? If I just had X, I would be happy. It might not be gifts and stuff at Christmas that's the challenge for you. It might not even be money, but something goes in that blank. A more functional family, right? A house, a better job, a baby, a partner. I mean, I am familiar with those. I know the ones I'm susceptible to. I'm 37, so a baby gets in that spot pretty often. And... I'm single. I know how tempting it is to think that a partner would make me happy, especially at Christmas. But that is how consumerism works, even when it's about a person. It's the promise of happiness, the promise that desire can be fulfilled by a product or a person or a state of being that you can buy. You can get if you buy that product. And in this message series for Advent, we've been talking about what it is we'll have to set down in order to pick up what God has for us. And we have to set down consumerism. We have to set down consumerism. We have to walk away from it, cut it off. So I'm going to get really practical for a second. We have to set down consumerism first by spending less money at Christmas. Here's what I mean. Some families, uh, <laughs> some families plan to only exchange uh, secondhand or homemade gifts. Uh, And that is a great way to start, although I just want to be super honest with you. The year that I tried to do this, I could not believe how stressful it was to try to find time to hand-make something for every person on my Christmas list. So you got to do what you got to do. I don't know (laughs) if that was better or worse. Um, But it's a great place to start. Some families reduce the number of Christmas gifts they buy, or they eliminate gift exchanges altogether. But even if you can't go that far, I know it's not always up to just you, right? There's in-laws and siblings and other people who play into that. So even if you can't go that far, set a budget and stick to it. Don't go into debt for Christmas. And then this is something I learned when I was trying to break my uh, shopping addiction. Uh, Practice saying no. Like, Learn how to walk away from impulse buys. Learn how to walk away even from planned purchases. Like sometimes when you're in a store and you've got your basket full of stuff, right before you get to the checkout counter, just set it down and leave. And don't buy anything. You would be shocked how freeing that is. To realize that this thing that you wanted does not have power over you. Just try that out. Because what we're trying to do is unhook ourselves from stuff and set it down. We're trying to unhook our worth and our value from the stuff that we have or the stuff that we can afford to give. We're trying to unhook the amount that we are loved or the amount that we love others. Unhook that from the price of the gift. Unhook our happiness, our contentment, our well-being from whether we have every single thing on our list. Consumerism is a lie. It's a powerful lie and a pervasive one. It's even a pleasant one, you know, because if actually I had X and I could be happy, then that if that's true, then that means that happiness is well within my grasp. It's just a little bit more money away. It's a pleasant lie. We like to believe that. But it's still a lie, and it's weighing us down. It's keeping us from being able to receive what Jesus really has for us. When the angels in the sky announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, they said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So we're setting down consumerism so that we can pick up joy. And I think the first step in picking up joy is to embrace your real life, the life you have right now no matter what it is, what it looks like. Stop wishing for a different life, a different circumstance. Don't let yourself play the if-only game. Because it ties your happiness to someone else or something else. And it makes idols out of people and things. Don't play that game. When your mind goes there, just stop and move it to something else. Um, I'm about to make a suggestion I've made before. And every time I make it, I think this is the corniest suggestion I ever make. But anyway, here it is. Consider keeping a gratitude journal. It's so corny. It sounds so like feel good and whatever. But what I mean is try to keep lists of things you're grateful for. The reason I keep saying it, even though I think it, whatever, it's a little bit silly, is because it actually works. There's scientific proof that paying attention, practicing gratitude works because it retrains the neuropathways in your brain. And so the path that used to go to I'd be happy if can be retrained through practice to run to, I'm grateful for. Our brains, as it turns out, are made of plastic for a really long time, and we can retrain the consumerist pathway into thankfulness. That's amazing. And then finally, embrace joy. This, I don't know. Th- I think this is really important. Be honest about what you need. I don't mean about what stuff you need, although maybe that. But be honest with the people around you. Like, if you're not near family, I'm not near family this Christmas. Be honest with the people around you about what you need. I told my friends a couple of weeks ago that I wanted to spend Christmas with them. I just told them. Now, was it awkward, you know, trying to invite myself into their Christmas celebration? Yeah, it kind of was, actually. I did it by text because I couldn't quite get up the courage to tell them to their face. Um, But in the end, that was way better than being alone at Christmas or being somewhere I don't really want to be, playing the if-only game in my head. I just had to choose. They love me. I can be honest with them. They were, they were great, and they said yes, so it's all good. Um, so be honest about wh- where you are and what you need. I do want to say there is no magical guarantee that if you follow these steps and you set down consumers and that all of a sudden your holiday will be magical and joyful. There's a thing uh, called the hedonistic paradox. This is where my philosophy nerd comes out. But the hedonistic paradox says that if we pursue pleasure, it escapes us. Like if we pursue pleasure for its own sake, it sort of evaporates. And so if if we want to find happiness, we actually have to aim at something else. You know how in the night when you're trying to look at the star, if you look right at it, you can't really see it? If you look off to the side, you can. It's like that. It's not going to work to find joy for you to just decide, I am going to have a joyful Christmas no matter what it takes. Hmm. (laughs) You might just be cranky then. I don't know. But if we set down consumerism and make some space in our real lives, I think we're going to find joy offered to us. I think Jesus offers it to us himself. Because this good news of great joy that will be for all the people, that is the news that Jesus himself has arrived. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's an upside-down kingdom where there's healing and acceptance and forgiveness, where people who were strangers are at table together, where there's mission and purpose, but there's still room for interruptions. Where there's a way to live that is generous and free and joyful. That's what Christmas is about the incarnation. God Himself moving into the neighborhood with us. The inbreaking of the divine. The good news of great joy. Yeah. <laughs> and we can't receive that. If our hands are full of shopping bags. I'm going to pray for us and uh, Tom has been having us and I like this uh, to open our hands to pray. So if you want to open your hands with me and I'll ask you to do some like setting some things down and receiving some things and that hand motion isn't magic but it just helps us learn it in our in our minds to set some things down turn our hands over, and then open them up to receive. So let's pray together. Father, I am so grateful for the good news of great joy. I'm so grateful for the way that there was, there was nothing that night that could be purchased or bought, that you defied consumerism with your very life in Jesus. And so, you know, we come before you really humbly <laughs> one week before Christmas Eve with all of our stress and planning and all the things we need to buy to go to the place and have the people over and we know that this is a season when we are we are deeply and profoundly at risk of putting our trust in things rather than in you. And so this morning we just we set that down. We set down consumerism. And we ask you to cut off this, if only I had X. Cut that off, that belief in our lives, in Jesus' name. And we turn our hands over and open them up, and we ask you to offer us joy in the surprising and unexpected way that it comes, right in line with who you are and have always been. We're ready to receive it. We pray those things in your name. Amen. I'm really glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, Thank you for being here. And there's going to be coffee out at the back in just a couple of minutes. I hope you can join us. Thank you.